This is John Halsman, and welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on and the new era that we live in. And I'm writing to you from the road. Uh, I promised we'd do one of these a week, come hell or high water. This week would be more toward the hell of things. Uh, but I managed to carve out a little bit of time to talk to you. And as usual, or as often, we're going to go through the looking glass today. We're going to look beneath the waves at what really is going on in global politics, which is often not that easy to uh, work out. Uh, but in this case, it's a fascinating puzzle that's well worth our time over Ukraine. Here's the current state of play. The Ukrainian offensive, which began in, in the autumn and led to the retaking of Kyrgyzstan, which was the only provincial capital held by the Russians, was successful, if not overwhelmingly so. Land was taken there and in Kharkiv, around Kharkiv. Um, and the Russians were back on their heels. But it's important to state the Russians still control around 20 percent of Ukrainian territory. And that number went down from, say, 23 or 24 to around 20. So a significant victory for Ukraine, but not an overwhelming one. And with the coming of winter, the Ukrainian offensive, as we predicted, has bogged down to a halt. And there's a stalemate, very little ground being taken. If any, the Russians are taking ground, but very marginally. And the lines have frozen up for the winter. And so on the battlefield, we have stalemate. Uh, and the Ukrainians, having blunted the Russian offensive, had a moderately successful counteroffensive, but that's petered out now with the coming of the winter snows. At the same time, there are two outer issues, and we've said this before, that really are going to determine what happened in the war. Um, and one is how long the Russians are prepared. To, they both deal with fatigue. One is how long the Russians are prepared to put up with drafts in order to keep fighting. And the other is how long the Western allies who are bankrolling entirely Ukrainian efforts, particularly the United States, which is spending more money on Ukraine than the rest of the world put together. And it's a shameful fact that we're spending more on European defense than the Europeans. But it's also true. And as Mark Twain would say, it has the added advantage of being true, my charge. And this means that the United States is bankrolling, keeping the lights on in Ukraine, as well as what weaponry they are given. And just today in Ramstein in Germany, the Ukraine contact group is meeting uh, to give Ukraine its next dollop of aid. And despite there being ringing Wilsonian arguments, as Secretary of Defense Austin put it, that history is watching us and we're not going to flag the United States contributed another $2.5 billion to the bottomless pit that is Ukrainian funding. Uh, no accounting of where this money is going in one of the most corrupt places on the planet. And I know that from firsthand experience, unfortunately, um, that this is happening. And $2.5 billion will go in addition to the $113 plus billion, depending on how you count it, that has gone on various forms of aid to Ukraine. The rest of the NATO allies have chimmed in. But over the key question of tanks, which has been a no-go line up to now, is seen as making them more, more escalatory, the United States is not in the present dollop of aid, at least so far mentioned, giving Abrams tanks. And this is very important because the other group of tanks that the Ukrainians desperately want are German Leopard tanks. The reason they want them is that the other allies in NATO often have Leopard tanks, and there are a bunch of spare parts for them, so they could be easily fixed when they inevitably and invariably run down. But so they're very keen on Leopard tanks. Germany, as ever, has been hesitant to do anything, and the other allies can't give 
these tanks, which are made in Germany, to the Ukrainians unless the Germans agree to it, which they've not done so far. Okay, follow the world I live in, the Kafka novel I live in. The Germans say, which may be truthful, that nobody's directly asked them to release Leopard tanks. The Poles have threatened to do so anyway, but the other allies have not asked them. And if they're not asked, they can't rule on that matter. This sounds like a convenient way of saying no without saying no, that the Germans, everyone knows the Germans will say no, so nobody asks them, would be my guess as to what's going on here. The Germans have rather cleverly said, well, we're not going to give tanks over to uh, the Ukrainians unless the United States goes ahead and gives the Abrams tanks as well. So the Germans are typically buck passing and saying as long as America doesn't give the tanks, we don't give the tanks. So that's where we have it. This despite all the ringing Wilsonian rhetoric. Now we have to add in a few more pieces to the Kafka novel that we're living in. The next piece of the puzzle would be that this week at Davos, President Zelensky, skillfully never missing an opportunity to try to bludgeon the West into giving him more aid, despite the fact that Ukraine is at best a second-order priority for the United States, if not a third-order priority, is trying to shame the West into doing something. Again, I don't fault him for doing it. He's doing his job for his country. It is existential for Ukraine. It is not existential for the United States, which has bigger and more important fish to fry, both in its own country and particularly in the Indo-Pacific, where the only peer superpower competitor, China, is threatening Taiwan. That's the game. But Zelensky, using the bully pulpit skillfully, don't blame him. I blame us for buying it. I don't, buy, I don't blame him for selling snake oil and pretending that Ukraine is somehow fighting for the rest of us when they're not. I blame us for swallowing the nonsense. As Zelensky said straightforwardly, as any Ukrainian leader would have to to survive, he said, guess what? We're going to retake every single inch of Ukrainian territory, and that includes Crimea. Now, many of us, including me, believe that if Crimea were seriously impeded, which is seen as one of the cradles of Russian civilization, was part of Russia before Khrushchev for many years, several hundred before that, that they're just going to give this up meekly isn't a reality. In fact, I think very seriously that the Russians would use tactical nuclear weapons if the line around Crimea were to collapse in some sort of route. And once you say tactical nuclear weapons, those of us who are sane would say that's probably a bad idea. So watch the Wilsonians say the Russians will never do that. I think that they are leading us down a very dangerous path. At least Zelensky has the honesty, if the temerity, to say that's what he wants to do. And the reason he says this is the Ukrainians have maximalist demands. No Ukrainian leader could say anything else that somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of his people, depending on the polling, want precisely that. Every single inch to be retaken of Ukrainian territory. And if they were to have a leader not do that, it's doubtless he would remain leader for long. So this is what the Ukrainian populists want. Maximalist demands because they still believe they can win the war. That goes together. Unfortunately for them, the Russian people also have maximalist demands that the polling out of Russia, incomplete as it is, though the Levada polling is very good, seems to say that the Russian people are aware that their government made a horrendous mistake in assuming Ukraine would be some sort of mopping up exercise taking a week. They're very worried about being a pariah. They're very worried about losing their place in the, in the world of nations in terms of being a great power, but therefore continuing fighting to protect 
their position in the world. Somewhere on the neighborhood of 60% of Russians seem to support continuing the war. So the war fatigue isn't happening there either. And in fact, the Russians are for continuing down this path. Let's remember that for 20 years, Putin has had approval ratings, real ones, that dwarf those of Western leaders that Joe Biden, for instance, would kill for, that somewhere between 80 and now around 60 percent of Russians over two decades have supported Putin enthusiastically. The reason for this is that he espouses great Russian nationalism, which they believe in. The Russians, if anyone knows any, are a nationalistic, patriotic country, much as the Chinese and the Americans are. And as my chief of staff, John Goodnight, put it to me, it shouldn't be a surprise to Europeans who thought nationalism was a bad thing. This is a terrible surprise to find out that the most nationalistic countries in the world, Russia, China, India, the United States, are doing the best strategically. The nationalism is indeed a force that unites people. And the Russians show no sign of wanting to quit. So we have a situation where everybody still has maximalist demands, Everybody still believes they can win the war, and yet the United States is bankrolling Ukraine while the Russian people are standing behind Putin despite the draft and another 300,000 reservists being called up, which will be another 180,000 or so people hitting the line. As Stalin said, and we've said this before, at a certain point, quantity becomes quality. These are very badly trained troops, but there are enough of them that they can blunt Ukrainian offensives and indeed go on the offensive themselves. And to add another piece to our puzzle of what's going on, which would seem murky, and I love going through the looking glass with you all, to add another piece to the puzzle, just this week, the New York Times, the house mouthpiece propaganda-wise of the Biden administration, released a internal deliberations of the Biden team saying they are warming to the idea of giving Ukraine weapons to let them uh, retake Ukraine, but to let them retake Crimea. And this is shocking, unsubstantiated, but shocking, and certainly would be a massive escalation in the war. And yet at the same time, we've just seen today in Ramstein, at least up to now, I'm doing this at um, mid-morning, uh, at least up to now, it would seem likely that this would mean, European time, by the way, um, this would be... Um, contradictory that on one hand the United States is saying we're going to give you better and more offensive weapons so you can retake Crimea and on the other hand we just didn't give them tanks what gives here how do I square these circles well what gives is that there's real unease among the most zealous supporters within the Biden administration who are after all a key driver in backing the war and that there are different groups of Wilsonians. And one group wants to more the neocon end of the spectrum or the fighting messianic Wilsonians. These people want to give the Ukraine everything, want to burn Moscow to the ground. In other words, they have the foreign policy of, say, Poland or the UK. And as a result of this, they uh, aren't thinking about the consequences very much. And this is moralistic. Putin is Hitler. Putin is evil. This fairy tale view of the world. And they're going to do this. On the other hand, you see the Biden administration not doing this in Ramstein, continuing to have limits, as they have up to now, on not escalating the war further. Sure, among the $2.5 billion, there's new money for armored personnel carriers, and they do matter. Sure, the British are giving 14 Challenger tanks to the uh, Ukrainians, but that's not enough to make any kind of difference. It's feeling good rather than doing good. It's gesture politics at best because they don't have any more. The key to the game, if you really were going to expand the war, is to give tanks that are Leopard German tanks 
and Abrams tanks. And as the Germans have subcontracted their decision to the United States, a lot rides on this decision. Many of us, including me, thought they would give the tanks, uh, that they wouldn't necessarily push as far as giving them offensive capability to head toward Crimea, but that there would be significant Abrams tanks. And this indeed still may be the case, but it hasn't happened yet. What's going on? What's going on? Well, there are divisions within the Biden administration. That's what's going on. There are usually divisions in foreign policy over major issues in a White House, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think one of the problems in the Iraq war was President Bush wasn't getting very good advice because he shut the rest of us out who were skeptical of the war and only listened to true believers like the Wolfman, Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, uh, people like that, Rumsfeld, Rummy. And then cheerleaders for the war, neocon cheerleaders like Kagan, Krauthammer, and Crystal, and Applebaum, the useful idiots who would keep things going by saying, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. They want democracy exported at the point of a gun. And these are the same people, ironically, still around with no shame, having not killed themselves for the fiasco that was the Iraq War, which is what would happen in the Roman Republic. Instead, they're still on TV saying precisely the same things. Don't worry about the Russians. They're not going to use nuclear weapons even over their sacred Crimean soil. Um, so these folks are worried internally, and they're using the House organ that is the New York Times to push the Biden administration. After all, these are their own people. They're not worried about the Republicans, and we'll get to them in a minute. They're not really worried about the Republicans who control only the House. The election is two years away. They can run with the football on this. They're worried about things that are internal, this battle internally as to how far to go to support the Ukrainians with these two positions within the Wilsonian camp being nuanced but different. One being, we'll support them, but we certainly don't want to escalate the war. The other being, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. As ever, mission creep. As ever, no one will bother us. This Wilsonian, utopian, unholy alliance with the right neocons. Um, and so they're using the New York Times to pressure their own administration because people who read the New York Times are overwhelmingly Democrats, Democrats often who are in the elite, to push them into thinking it's okay to take uh, Crimea. And that's what's happening. And yet so far, the Biden administration hasn't budged. This is the canary in the coal mine as to whether there will be further mission creep. And at the moment, there isn't. But what this does show us, this entire very murky situation where we have to go through the looking glass to have a good look at it. What it does show us very clearly is that there are divisions within the Biden White House and that people, and I would suspect people like Secretary of State Blinken, are more cautious on this point while others are more for running with the football. And, and that's what's going on. But I think there's one other thing that it shows among Democratic Wilsonians, really of both sides, both the, uh, the Messianic types as well as the more cautious types. It shows a real worry about the state of the war, that contrary to what you're reading in the paper that the Ukrainians are winning, let's remember that 20% of the territory is still controlled by the Russians and that the Ukrainian offensive has come to an end uh, due to the winter. The next thing they're not telling us that you need to know as to what's really going on in Ukraine is that in the spring, almost everyone agrees, and this is from left, right, and center across the board, they don't agree on what to do about it, but they agree on the fact, and facts, as President Reagan put it, are stubborn things, they agree on the fact that come the spring, the Russians will go back on the offensive, that this call-up of 300,000 new reservists will lead the Russians to attempt a new offensive. 
Whether this offensive works and makes a great deal of gain or not, and I suppose it will make some gains, but not decisive gains, what it proves is the Russians are still capable, even after a year of fighting, even after the extraordinary victory the Ukrainians won initially in blunting the drive on Kiev, the Russians are still capable of mounting a full-scale offensive and that Russian public opinion is entirely at 60% behind that. So the Russians aren't losing if they can mount offensives or on the offensive, and their people are still for calling people up through the draft. That this external political risk of their, of their own countrymen stopping the war, that's not on the cards. And if anything, the pressure in Russia is from the right and not the left saying President Putin is, is prosecuting this war very poorly, not let's negotiate. No one is saying that. It's We don't think he's prosecuting the war very well. He needs to do more, not he needs to do less and go to the table. There's no sign whatever, even into the spring, that the Russians are prepared to stop fighting. So this is likely to go on and on and on all year. And although the Ukrainians, and I think they will, eventually blunt the Russian offensive in the spring, they'll launch a counteroffensive, proving they too can still go on the offensive. Uh, they're a much smaller army, but with better weapons. It'll take them time to learn how to use the new weaponry, the train with the new NATO weapons. But they'll do that. They'll blunt, the, they'll blunt what's going on and then go on the offensive themselves, probably do even less well than the Russians, certainly no better than the Russians do. And so come late October, November next year, what does this leave us? We'll be back in the exact situation we are now with an awful lot more people dead. And that's the tragedy of what we're talking about. The political risk option, though, is that another year on, if I'm right, and this is what really is happening, Wilsonians are beginning to worry about Western fatigue. And this is what Putin, I'll admit, is counting on, that the Russian ability to suffer, which is almost limitless, will continue to outlast the Western ability to bankroll a third-rate priority. And here we go back to basic realist doctrine, which everyone has forgotten in the fantasy view that Ukraine is somehow winning the war. Basic realist doctrine would have us know very clearly that Russia is going to care more about what happens in Ukraine than we do in the United States, just as the United States cares more about what happens in next door Mexico than do the Chinese. Geopolitics matters. We forget the geo, the geography involved in looking at politics. And this would lead us very clearly to the idea that Russia still thinks, and I think correctly, that they can outlast us. Because the United States does have other fish to fry, and a year on, with no significant movement in the lines, that there'll be this Russian offensive that's blunted, this Ukrainian offensive that's blunted, we will see the war become more and more attritional, more like World War I, less major movements on the field, and we'll see it bogged down. And at this level, more and more people will question whether spending already $100 plus billion on a second-order priority makes any kind of sense. And if you wonder if I'm right, you really shouldn't, because here I can bring you an empirical fact, a fact. The latest Washington Post poll in January surveyed Republicans and Democrats about the war in Ukraine. And while a comfortable majority of Democrats still favor giving Ukraine whatever the heck it wants, for the first time, a majority of Republicans were against giving any further aid, you heard me right, any further aid to Ukraine. The Republicans are getting tired of bankrolling the war. And this is for three reasons. One, because they don't see it as a major priority, they wonder why the Europeans aren't doing more if they think it is a greater priority. That yet again, the United States is footing the bill 
for a European Union that has a GDP roughly the same size as the United States. And yet, although we don't get to retire at the age of 14, as the French street is presently calling for, why in the world should we counter-subsidize Europeans to hate us from the safety of a French cafe? That is the basic argument. The next bit of the argument would be that we have problems at home that our schools are falling apart. Everyone who's been through COVID knows the teachers' unions are propagandizing children and that they're not teaching them how to read very well. The, re the way around this is get rid of any sort of grades, get rid of any sort of metrics so nobody can see how god-awful our schools are. Everyone knows this. The teachers are the villains of the COVID piece. The bridges are falling apart. The roads are falling apart. And we're $31 trillion in debt. And so for domestic reasons, Helping a third-order priority, which is a corrupt kleptocracy run by oligarchs, probably isn't the fairy tale of good versus evil that Ann Applebaum would have you believe. And then the last argument, which I certainly favor, is the geostrategic argument that, look, the Indo-Pacific is where all the future growth in the world and all the future risk are going to be located. The vast majority of future economic growth is in the Indo-Pacific, and the huge political risk of the U.S. and China the two superpowers in our era vying for dominance in this one region, along with great powers India and great power uh, Japan. There are an awful lot of elephants on the lawn here, and that the greatest political risk is in the region where there's the greatest political or economic gain. That's why my firm spends 70% of its time dealing with the Indo-Pacific, as we should. But the United States government is not spending 70% of its time dealing with the Indo-Pacific. Rather like a fruit fly, it's going to the immediate crisis rather than thinking through the long-term strategy. And so rather than divert weapons to a corrupt uh, kleptocracy run by oligarchs, which is what Ukraine is, um, we are, which is a third-order American priority at best, we're ignoring China's advances and designs on Taiwan and building up an alliance in the Indo-Pacific that is so strong that China doesn't make a dash for Taiwan. And if we did that, we would guarantee global prosperity for the next generation. It's overwhelmingly more important than what's going on in Ukraine. And yet the Americans is ever fruit fly-like in the Wilsonian view that every problem is equal somehow. Fruit fly-like in thinking this are diverting weaponry that we've already signed deals with Taiwan so they can have a crash military modernization, but we're diverting that weaponry to Ukraine. There's only a certain amount of weapons. The defense budget, despite American fantasists such as Andrew Mikta, is only so big, and we're not going to make it triple the size and cripple our economy so he can do everything all at once. No, we're going to have to make choices, and this should be an idiot-proof choice that Ukraine is less important than the Indo-Pacific. And yet that's not what's happening in terms of spending, in terms of focus, in terms of where the administration's at. And this is the best Republican argument as to why to not double down over and over again on Ukraine. So this push in the New York Times, this trial balloon, is because this is the last chance these guys are going to have to push this argument as now a majority of Republicans and the number's gone down from 80-some percent now down to below 50%, and the trend line is ever downward. I think that's a soft number, and, it'll, and a year in, we'll keep going down with almost no doubt at all. And so this is what's really going on in Ukraine, that patience in the Republican Party is beginning to run out as we face stalemate ahead of us, and that's what's going on today. Hope you guys enjoy this. It was nice to have a chance to talk, even if from a hotel room where I'm overcoffeed and underslept. 
Uh, but I'll be back at my desk next week, and I look forward to talking to you all then. Take care, and please, by the way, it's thrilling so many of you have subscribed. For those of you who have, please do give now. We're, we want to continue doing these once a week, and my business is crazy busy. We're working on the book, The Last Best Hope. Um, which is going to be a history of American realism, how to unite the various wings of the Republican Party around a realist foreign policy for the next generation ahead. It's a truly historic chance to change things. I'm honored uh, to be supported by the Stand Together Alliance, the old Koch Foundation, in writing this book. Business is booming, and the only way I can justify doing these is if you guys contribute the $70 a year or $7 a month, $70 a year, so I can keep giving this the time for our community that we want to because I'm being pulled in 16 different directions. I love what we do, so please do give the $70 a year, and we will keep them coming. Next week, I will be back in the safety of the cats, all five of them, and the Milan studio where we'll do whatever's going on next week. Hope you enjoyed this. Please do subscribe and please do give.